so good to be with you virtually uh, this morning. Uh, I would like to uh, share with you a way to think about the spiritual life, a way to think about prayer and the whole act of orienting ourselves toward uh, the Spirit of God in our lives and uh, in this world. And um, and I understand that you all will be uh, doing a series in the coming weeks that will draw from uh, my book, Naked Spirituality. And uh, I'm very honored about that and happy that I can offer this, uh, this introduction today. Uh, over the years, you know, I've talked to lots and lots of people around the world, uh, Christians of all different types and and uh, denominations and traditions and orientations. Um, and, you know, at the deepest heart of us, I, I think all of us want to be transformed people. I think all of us want to experience what it is that God wants us to experience and that our deepest souls want to experience. I don't think any of us really set out to be religious jerks or or self-hating failures who feel like we just can't make it in the spiritual life. I think all of us have nothing but the the best intentions um, and the best desires mixed in with all kinds of other things. Um, and I, I think it can help us if we start by thinking about our own lives in relation to the larger framework of living things in, in this universe. Uh, and we understand that our spirituality, like all living things, is dynamic. That goes for us as individuals, but it also applies to us as faith communities. Um, we all start where we start, and then we go through different experiences and some traumas and setbacks and difficulties. Over time, we mature, we develop, we evolve, we change. And as many of us look back over our spiritual life, pastors like me, we look over the broad range of experiences that we see in other people. Those of us who are parents and grandparents, we look at our children and grandchildren. Many of us notice certain patterns, kind of seasons of development in, in the spiritual life, distinct stages that leave their mark on us like rings on a tree, each one including the other in something bigger, not leaving what came before behind, not rejecting it, but including it and transcending it in a pattern of, of ongoing growth. Um, and I've written about this in my book, uh, Naked Spirituality. Then my book, Faith After Doubt, really focuses on uh, this growth process. And then in my most recent book, Do I Stay Christian? I return to this theme. Way back when I was in graduate school, I began studying in depth some theorists of human development. And I started seeing the overlap uh, between what psychologists say and educational experts say on human and intellectual development with uh, the patterns of spiritual development too. As I see it, each stage in a life with God depends upon the earlier stages. It doesn't reject them, but embraces them in something bigger. And each stage is good and beautiful in its own way. Look, all of us as parents, we remember when our babies were just tiny little infants. And then we remember when they became crawlers and toddlers. And then we remember when they got ready for school and went to school. Each stage is beautiful. 
Uh, and, and, in, and also, in a sense, each stage has its limitations and prepares us for something new. Uh, in the spiritual life, we could say each new stage of the spiritual life opens up a new soul space and expands our capacities for love so that we can love God, neighbor, self, and the earth more fully. And at the end of the day, I think we all would agree that that's what the spiritual life is all about. As Paul said in the book of Galatians, he said, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. In other words, he said, look, so much of what we exhaust ourselves on in the religious life, it's meaningless. The only thing that matters, he says, is faith expressing itself in love. It's very similar to what Micah said. Uh, in his time, people were preoccupied with the sacrificial system. He says, look, is, is what is it that God really desires of us human beings? Is it that we just have more and more animal sacrifices so that rivers of blood flow from the altar? He says, of course not. What God desires from us as human beings is that we would just do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. The same kind of mo movement toward kindness, love, caring about the, the justice and well-being of our neighbors. Um, so I began reading these theorists and I integrated uh, what I could come to understand of their work into a four-stage framework. And, and look, you and I know life doesn't uh, come that neatly divided into stages. Um, but for many of us, just as a year has four seasons, the spiritual life seems to unfold season by season. You know there can be warm days in winter and really cold days in spring, but the pattern of winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring is a pattern that we see unfolding in, in life in many ways. Um, I would like to propose that after we complete the four stages once, we go through them again and again, and each time we might say at a, a bigger spiral, a higher and wider spiral, or if you prefer, a deepening and widening spiral. And so we'll look at each stage at some spiritual practices appropriate to that season, and we're going to root each of these practices or spiritual postures in one simple word. I'm only going to name them today. You're going to unpack them and go deeper in them uh, in the coming weeks. And, and you could think of these practices as being like postures of the heart, ways that we open ourselves to God, ways that we make space in our inner life as we mature develop skills and add skill to skill, capacity to capacity, season by season, stage by stage, step by step. And I propose that we all begin in stage one. Now, you might actually say we begin in stage zero because we all started at zero, but our parents from the very time where we gain any kind of motor skills and ability to say no and ability to toddle around the room, um, our parents are trying to raise us into stage one. So it's kind of our baseline of childhood, and I call it simplicity. In stage one, simplicity is like spring, when many things are born and begin to grow. It's a time of beginnings. It's a time of fresh new life. And in simplicity, it, you could also say it's the stage of dualism, because when we come into the world, we don't know what is safe 
and dangerous. We don't know who's a friend and who's a foe. We don't know what is delicious and what is poison. We don't know what is, uh, you know, uh, something we should be curious about and something that if we follow that, we could, we're not ready for it. We could get into a lot of trouble. And so, uh, it really our survival work in stage one is to learn to sort the world into two categories. Uh, and yes, no, us, them, friend, enemy, uh, uh, insider, outsider, legal, illegal, uh, uh, and so on. Um, uh, and that dualistic work really preoccupies us uh, in, in our younger years. Uh, we go to school, is that right, wrong? Uh, did we follow the rules or did we break the rules? Uh, and, and since we're all new on this planet, um, we depend on trusted authority figures to help us sort things out. We're very, very dependent on authority figures. Even though we might fight them and argue with them and throw temper tantrums, still, we're dependent on them. Um, we need them for literally for our survival. I'd like to propose to you that many people stay in stage one their whole lives. And many people, when they think of religion, they think of a stage one phenomenon. Now, that's just not true. Um, I think at its best, religion takes us through all the stages. But especially in white American Christianity, we have a lot of stage one Christianity. And, and, and in these settings, life is simple, life is clean, life is neat, life is under control. Our authority figures know the right answers, and uh, the other guy's authority figures have the wrong answers. Um, and so uh, that explains an awful lot of religion that has turned off many of us. This is simplicity. And in the coming weeks, you'll explore three central postures for the, or, or practices for the springtime of simplicity. Here, which is the posture or prayer of showing up with God. Thanks, the practice of gratitude, appreciation. And oh, the practice of awe and wonder and delight and worship. Uh, many people stay in stage one their whole lives. Many, I would say, denominations um, have very little room for people to grow beyond stage one. Certain congregations, if you try to move beyond stage one, they tell you you're backsliding. They tell you you're going backwards because they don't even know there's anything beyond stage one. And um, But in spite of the obstacles, many of us continue on into stage two. Life pushes us there. My friend Richard Rohr often says, it's great pain and great love that moves us out of a stage. I would add, sometimes it's a really good education, really reading really good literature, or a great experience of travel or cross-cultural relationship. And in stage two, we move from simplicity into complexity. Let me give you just a simple example. Let's say I grew up, I, I did grow up in a, a Christian fundamentalist home. And let's say that one of my best friends in school is Jewish. And I get invited over to her house for dinner one night. And I find out that they say prayers, but their prayers are different from ours. And I find out they celebrate holidays, but their holidays are different from ours. I find out that they have rules about what they can and cannot do, but their rules are different from ours. And, and so 
I, I'm 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 dealing with complexity at a couple levels here because my church maybe told me we're right, our religion's right, our rules and our holidays are correct, and everybody else's are wrong. But here, my Jewish friend and her family are so nice to me. And so now I have complexity that somebody who's supposed to be one of the bad guys is actually pretty good. And that makes me wonder if those good guys who told me they were bad, whether they were really good. But not only that, I realize there are different sets of rules in different contexts. And now I have the complex work of negotiating a a complex world. I compare complexity to summer. If springtime is simplicity, when everything's growing rapidly, Summer now is a time of intense growth and activity, and we might say fruitfulness. And, um, and sometimes summer's a time where you have to do some weeding and, uh, where there's competition. And, uh, and that's, uh, those are the challenges of complexity. In summertime, our simple dualisms become complexified. Um, and so we start to realize, you know what? Some of us aren't so good and some of them aren't so bad. Some of the good guys can turn bad and some of the bad guys can turn good. Some things I was told were true may actually only be partially true. And some things I were told, I was told were false may only be partially false. And that thing that I was told was safe, I found that if you do too much of it, it could be dangerous. And that thing I was told was dangerous. There might be a time where it's actually necessary. And so negotiating all those complexities is the work of stage two. We learn to function more independently. We start learning the how-tos of succeeding in a complex world. We learn to pray. We learn to study the Bible. We learn to solve problems. We learn to help others on our own. And we like leaders who are less like rule givers and authoritarians and, and more who are like coaches who are giving us some freedom and helping us to succeed on our own. Um, and, and the practices you're going to talk about in coming weeks during the summer of complexity are sorry because we all make mistakes, help because we all have to face our limitations, and please, where we care about others and we're very, very concerned. We want the same well-being for them that we want for ourselves. Now, again, a lot of people go from stage one into stage two and they stay there the rest of their lives. I think in the United States, in my lifetime, a lot of stage one Christians have moved to stage two. And we have this center of gravity in Protestantism and in Catholicism that is a a sort of an alliance between stage one and stage two Christians. Um, But more and more of us, I think, at a younger and younger age, are driven by great pain, great love, a great education, good travel, cross-cultural experiences and relationships, and we find ourselves in stage three, uh, which I call perplexity. And in complexity, we learn to critique the other, and we learn to defend us, our in-group. But in perplexity, we take the critique that we used to put upon others, and we turn it upon ourselves. We, we instead of just critiquing the out-group, we start to critique the in-group. And when that happens, it's often very scary. Um, We wonder, if I critique us, will I have anything left? What makes me any better than anybody else? And of course, when we ask that question, we think, 
who gave me the idea that I was supposed to be better than anybody else? Um, it, it's a it's a challenging and scary time where we start to peel the layers of the onion and we wonder if there will be anything left at the end except for tears. And the reason I think it compares to autumn is this beautiful tree that's grown through the summer. Now its leaves turn and begin to fall. And all we feel is a loss, a loss of the innocence of stage one and a loss of the innocence of stage two. The innocence in stage one that we could know anything and the innocence in stage two that we could do or fix or solve anything. Often in stage three, we resent those dualistic authority figures of stage one. And we often resent and get angry at those pragmatic authority figures of stage two. Uh, and, and very often we feel skeptical and disappointed, disillusioned, alienated uh, from our the group that brought us to where we are. If uh, we dare to go public with our questions and doubts, we may start to find other people who are similarly disillusioned, similarly questioning, similarly alienated. And together we want to create a space where we can be open and honest about our struggles with our own in-group as well as uh, other groups. Uh, and uh, there can be a great excitement when people find each other and find, oh, here's some people I can be honest with. Um, and a lot of people... Uh, end up staying in stage three for the rest of their lives, often because they don't know there's anything beyond it. Um, in uh, the coming weeks, you'll be exploring um, three postures that I associate with stage three. Uh, the, the question, when? When will this be over? When will I figure this out? When will this stressful time end? The, the Outrage of no, this is unacceptable. I cannot accept this. And learning to raise our voice and our fists and say no. And then the question why. Why not even as a demand for the answer, but why as an expression of the fact that we don't understand, that we don't know, an ability to accept our unknowing. It's one of the things we struggle with in stage three. Um, and, uh, and, and here's a problem. If you stay in stage three long enough, you, your skepticism can easily turn into cynicism and your analysis, analysis and critique of others can easily turn into a kind of paralysis, really. And you feel stuck and you have to get on with life. And something often happens at the age of end of, of stage three, where you become cynical about your own cynicism and skeptical of your own skepticism. And you begin to long for something beyond simplicity, beyond complexity, beyond perplexity. Before I go on, I should say that some people, when they get to perplexity, they, they become so frightened by the emptiness and meaninglessness and despair that they think is waiting for them if they take one more step, that they run back in reverse. And I think cults and cultic and authoritarian groups often thrive by providing a kind of uh, uh, a place of retreat from people who became frightened by where growth might take them. And um, 
And I think we see an awful lot of that in both our religious and political culture in today's world. But I think more and more of us, once we've done the work of stage three, we've learned what we need to learn from uh, from perplexity. We're ready to move into the fourth stage, harmony. Harmony is in many ways like winter. Our, all the fast, exciting growth of springtime has led to all the hard work and productivity and fruitfulness of summer. And we've had the kind of blaze of glory that leads into perplexity as first leaves turn such beautiful colors and then begin to fall. And as some of the things that we work so hard to do turn out not to end so well, and, and there's this sense of a descent um, to a time of reflection about what's happened, and then a time of anticipation, could anything come from this? In some ways, this feels like a time of death that could prepare the way for resurrection. In harmony, we look back at stages one, two, and three, like rings on a tree. And we realize that each of those stages had strengths that we learned, had capacities that we developed. And we realize that those are good capacities. We just have to learn how to integrate the dualism and the pragmatism and the relativism and skepticism uh, uh, and critical thinking of stage three to integrate them within a larger reality. And we wonder what that larger reality would be. We also face the weaknesses of stages one, two, and three. And we begin to understand that those weaknesses are in some ways unavoidable uh, just because we didn't have the capacities we needed to, uh, to develop this larger integration. We, we learn to hold both us and them, insiders and outsiders, in a larger us, a big we, what my friend Dr. Barbara Holmes calls a cosmic we. And we learn to have compassion for people in each stage, including the old me that used to live in stage one and the old me that used to live in stage two and the old me that used to live in stage three and the new me that is trying to find my way into stage four. In, in, in the coming weeks, you'll explore the postures and practices of winter, of harmony, of integration. Behold, just learning to open our eyes to what's there. Yes, of learning to assent and surrender to the beautiful flow of life. And silence, to learn to sit in reflective, contemplative, grateful, appreciative silence, not needing to fix everything and explain everything and know everything and do everything, but simply seeking to be and do what is mine to be and do. Um, if we stay in harmony long enough, it becomes a new simplicity. And, and, and if we stay in that new simplicity long enough, it becomes a new complexity. And I think the seasons repeat, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, in that spiral where we are more mature with each spiral. This beautiful pattern 
of expanding beyond what we once were and expanding again and expanding again matches, of course, the whole reality of this amazing, wonderful universe full of expansion. And um, so that was the, that's a kind of overview, sets the stage for uh, naked spirituality. This understanding, well, here's how the Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. He said, when I was a child, I spoke, I thought, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a mature adult, I put those childish ways behind me. And you say, well, Paul, what are the more mature ways? And Paul says, well, listen, faith is really important. It abides. Hope is really important. It abides. But the greatest thing of all is love. Love never fails. Love is what maturity really means. And this process of maturing from the rules, the us, them, the in, out, the, uh, sim- the, the, all of the work of simplicity, it's really about preparing us with some essential skills of love, moving into pragmatic complexity where we, we learn how to function and succeed and do our part in society. That all contributes to love if we properly understand it. It's not about me. It's about this cosmic we. Even the doubting and questioning and struggling, the, 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 the sensitivity to injustice and oppression and unfairness that happens in stage three, that's preparing us for love. And the more we understand love as the big picture, the more I think we're in tune with what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 13 and what Jesus said when he said the new commandment that he has for us, the greatest commandment that we could ever be given is the, is the commandment to love. I just thought I'd tell you a brief story in closing that might give you a feeling for what that stage four harmony looks like. My uh, wife was uh, in, a freshman in college when her father suddenly died of, of a heart attack. And um, some months after her father's death, um, uh, Grace went home to be with her mother and her four siblings, all of whom were teenagers. And, um, and she and her mother went out for dinner alone. And uh, their first dinner after the loss of uh, Grace's dad and and she and her mother, Tony, were sitting in this restaurant, just the two of them. And while they were eating, Tony, my mother-in-law, looked out across the restaurant and she said to Grace, I can tell of all the couples in this room, I can tell which ones are married and which ones are dating. And Grace says, come on, Ma, of course you can. You just look on their hand and see which ones have a ring or not. And Tony said, no, it's not that. I can tell which ones are married because they're not talking. And I can tell which ones are dating because they're all talking. Now, Grace heard this as, what, a 19-year-old kid. She heard this, and she's thinking, my poor mother is cynical. My poor mother thinks that it's only the young dating couples that are exciting and talking and happy to be together, and that the boring old married couples are just sitting there bored with nothing to say. And Grace was disturbed by this and remembered it and told it to me. Uh, she especially told it to me if we ever went to a restaurant and we were sitting quietly, she'd remind me of that story and say, I don't want us to become one of those boring old married couples. 
Well, many years passed. We raised our kids, and Grace and I were in a restaurant, and we were eating, enjoying our food, and we weren't talking. And suddenly, Grace says to me, oh, no. I said, what's wrong, Grace? She said, I get it. I said, what do you mean? She said, remember that story I told you about it, about my mother shortly after my father's death? She said, you and I are sitting here. We've been together for so many years. We can finish each other's sentences. You know what I like. I know what you like. We know each other's thoughts. And it's not boring. It's comfortable that we can be together here in this place and just enjoy one another's company without a lot of words. She said, now I realize that we were in that restaurant and I was talking my mother's ear off. I was just blabbering and talking and talking and talking. And my mother was missing my father because she remembered how nice it was to be able to sit quietly with a person with whom you're at peace and at rest and just be in their presence without all the noise. I love that story because it gives me an image of how I feel now at 66. When I am in the presence of God, honestly, I don't feel a need to talk and blabber and beg and all the rest. I, I just, I trust God. I feel at ease in God's presence. And I just cherish the great peace of being in the presence of love, love that I receive, love that I give, love that we share. My dear friend Richard Rohr is, you know, up in years now, and he's losing some vitality, and he's looking very frail. And uh, if you say, what have you been up to, Richard? He says, I mostly just gaze. I sit up on my house, and there's a big cottonwood tree, and I, I just gaze at the cottonwood tree, and I notice its beauty, and, and I just see it with love, and I notice the grass, and I notice the birds, and I notice the people driving by. He says, I just look with love. That's not a bad place to be after living life. <laughs> 